0: A couple years ago, I had my wisdom teeth removed. Anybody had their wisdom teeth removed? In fact, when I went to have my wisdom teeth removed, I was so wise, they they, they took out, normally they take out four. They took out five because I'm so wise. I had too much wisdom in my mouth, so they they took out five teeth. And uh, when you get your wisdom teeth removed, they give you a couple, when you're you're leaving, they they, they want you to get a couple prescriptions. They want you to get a, a prescription for the pain medication. And that is fun. It has some interesting side effects. In fact, when I was on that medication, my wife wouldn't let me have my phone for fear of what I might say or do with my phone. Uh, but the other prescription they give you is they give you a, an antibiotic in case there's an infection in there. And, and when you get a prescription for an antibiotic, um, what they say is they give you the prescription and they say, use this until the bottle is empty. So you know, it might be 10 days or whatever. They say, we want you to use it till the bottle's empty. Now, I don't know if you were like me, but I'm just going to be straight up honest with, with, with um, I don't ever take it till the bottle's empty, right? And anybody else ever do that? Where you, you get the prescription and, and you take it while the symptom is there. But then, I, I, and I, I, I see you shaking your head, come on, doc. And so, I, I take the prescription until my symptom's gone, three, four days, I'm not feeling it anymore, and I stop taking the prescription. And that's a bad idea to do, right? Because what happens is, is, is we can deal with a symptom, but you've got to go deep. Uh, the disease, the decay, the, the, whatever it is, often is deep. And you've got to allow that prescription to, to dig in deep for it to be truly effective with, with what's happening. And that's why the, the, the doc says, take this prescription until the, the bottle is empty. And I was, I was thinking about this idea uh, today. Today we're going to wrap up a series that we've been in uh, the past month called Identity. Uh, kind of looking at, at where our identity is and where our identity comes from. And identity is something that all of us deal with. Uh, we, we, we live in the world. We live in this world, and God says we're, we're, we're different. We live in the world, but not, we're not supposed to be of the world. And so there's this battle that rages inside of our heart. For where will we draw our identity from? Where are, will our identity be identified from the, from the world around us? Or does God establish our identity? And so we've, we've talked about this, about how so often it's so easy for us to listen to what the world, listen to what people say around us as to, this is how you're supposed to live. And, and we build our identity on those things. And so we, we do all these things and we buy all these things and we try all these things, trying to get our identity established by what the world says. And so that's why we've taken this time to look at Psalm 139. Because Psalm 139 is all about God and it's all about us. And it really becomes an opportunity for us to establish our identity in God instead of what the world around us has to say. So we looked, uh, we looked in week chapter 1. We looked and said, uh, God, uh, verses 1 through 6, God knows us. God knows everything, but God specifically knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts before they come out. He knows, he knows what happens in our day. And the great thing is, even though God knows us, uh, uh, verse 5 says that God uh, still accepts us. He knows everything there is about us, all the thoughts that run through our mind. And even in that, God still loves us and accepts us. We saw in week 2, we saw that God is everywhere. Uh, there's no place that we can go to escape God's presence. And the good news from that was that, was that there's nowhere that we were ever beyond God's care. And we are never beyond His reach. Uh, last week, we looked at um, how we were created perfectly by God. How God designed everything in our life to be for His glory. And that was a comforting thing for us to know, that God created us very specifically. That we're not messed up. We don't have these, these issues that God has a plan for us just as we are. And as we're trying to, to wrap up this series, I'll be honest with, with, with a little bit with where I'm at. See, my, my fear is as a pastor, that we would look at this, uh, this series on identity, it would kind of be like the antibiotic. That we would get to the symptom. We deal with a symptom, and we can all agree, okay, I'm, I'm created by God. My identity comes from God. But my concern is we haven't gone deep enough. My concern is we can all mentally and theologically agree, okay, my identity is from God, but the practicality of it becomes much more difficult for us to embrace. See, what I found is, The longer I've known Christ, the longer I've been a Christian, the more I realize how great of a sinner I am. And the longer I follow Christ, the more I realize how much I need the gospel to drill deeper and deeper and deeper into my life to really bring about life change. This is why as a church, we're going to say that we're a gospel-centered church. We're always going to come back to this idea about what does the gospel say about it. In fact, uh, in the early stages of planning the church, I remember I had a guy come, and he said, Hey, Pastor, hey, Pastor, um, why are you always preaching about the gospel? Like, I've got the gospel. Can't we go deeper? Can't we go to like, like the gospels like Christianity 101. Can't we go to Christianity like 201? Can't we just go deeper? And I want us to understand, like there is no deeper level. There is no 201 to Christianity. The Bible is, is, is 66 books, written by by 50 different authors that create one story. It's a story about salvation through Jesus Christ. It is a gospel story. The entire Bible, it is about about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So everything about the Bible points to this gospel, points to salvation through Jesus. And as a Christian, everything we do should be pointing back to the gospel, to salvation by Jesus, to, to our being saved by his grace. And this is why when we come to this idea about having a gospel identity, I want us to come back and, and not just deal with the surface. I want to make sure we're, we're allowing this gospel identity to, to sink deep roots into our heart. Because this is what I know. I know, and I, I'm emphatic about this, that God has sent us as Christians into the world. He has sent us into the world to be his witnesses to the people around us. And so we understand this is what God has called us to do. But there's two, there's two things that happen is this is where we're supposed to be. There's two, uh, there's two extremes on this pendulum though. Is sometimes as Christians, we think, well, uh, the world is evil. So I don't want anything to do with the world. And I'm going to remove myself from the world. And I'm going to be in this Christian little bubble. And I'm going to have all these Christian people around me because it's safe. And I want my family to be safe. And this is what it's supposed to look like. But you see, I don't I don't think it's possible for us to, to be a faithful Christian and to be completely removed from the world in our Christian little bubble. Uh, in fact, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, you actually see that as the Christians, as they were centering only in Jerusalem, God sent persecution to send the Christians throughout the rest of the region. He said, no, we're not just supposed to be here. We're supposed to go into the world and make disciples and be my witnesses. So that's one side of the extreme. The other side of the pendulum, the other extreme, is uh, Christians say, you know what, we're going to be just like the world, and there's really nothing that separates us from the world. So we become just like them. You know, our values, our, our, our speech, the, the things that we watch, the things that we do, our lifestyle becomes just like the world. And so really there's no difference from us uh, as Christians in the rest of the world. And so this is why I think we've got to drill deep because we're not supposed to be in either one of these extremes. We're supposed to be right here in the middle. We're supposed to be Christians in the world, but not of the world. And this is why I feel like we have to to dig deep because I don't know about you, but I always hear that voice calling after me. I always hear the voice of the world saying, hey, Kevin, you know your identity comes from God. But I always hear the voice, always trying to steal my heart away from God. Always trying to tell me, hey, listen, you need to to build your identity here. You need to do this differently. And so this is why I think it's important for us to drill deep on this idea about identity. To establish who we are so that way when we hear the world calling, because the world calls us all the time, that we can stand firm. My identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Psalm 139. If you have a phone, you can pull it up on your phone. We also will have the words on the screen back here. And today we're going to look at what are the foundations for a gospel identity. Like if we want to take this idea about identity being centered in God, like how do we dig deep roots to where we can withstand uh, that temptation to remove ourselves from the world or to mimic the world? So today we're going to look at a couple foundations necessary to establish our roots in a gospel identity. So if you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me um, and, and follow along as we read through our text today. Psalm chapter 139, verses 19 through 24. And it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious tent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to be gathered here today, that God, we can hear your word being taught. God, we're not here to listen to um, opinions and advice on the best way to live. God, we're here to hear your word. And God, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding today, that God, you would speak to us. God, that you would uh, help us address our identity, that we would have a a gospel identity, an identity rooted in, in the way that you see us and not the way that the world tells us we are. God, we just pray for your presence to rest on us now. I pray for your presence to rest on every one of us in this building today. Jesus, we love you and we praise you when we ask this in your name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, when you first hear this passage, I don't know about you, you're kind of like, did I really just hear those words? Like, like, it doesn't really sound like Bible. Like, it almost sounds like something that would be out of Star Wars or Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that. Because you hear these words and he says... David writes "And Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Like, that doesn't sound like what you'd expect from the Bible. He says, They speak against you with malicious uh, intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. He says, Verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Like, that doesn't sound like what I expect from the Bible right? Like, aren't we told in the Bible we're supposed to love our enemies and, and pray for them who persecute us? And so it's, it, it kind of leaves you head-scratching where Psalm 139, we've been talking about these wonderful things about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, about how we're never beyond his care. And then all of a sudden, David writes about, I hate these people. I count them as enemies. God, I hope you destroy them. It almost makes you wonder, like, what are these things doing? How do they connect? How do they be involved together? Well, this is uh, something called an imprecatory psalm. Uh, an imprecatory psalm is uh, a psalm where the psalmist, usually David, he is, is cursing or he's praying for, for judgment or praying for punishment against God's enemies, specifically against God's enemies. Uh, there are a number of these imprecatory psalms, they include uh, Psalm chapter 5, verse 10, uh, chapter 28. Chapter 31, 35, chapter 40, chapter 58, chapter 69, which actually was Jesus' favorite. He quotes Psalm 69 several times. Uh, Psalm 109, Psalm 139, and Psalm 140. And what we need to understand is, as we read these psalms, we think, that doesn't sound like the God that I know. A couple things I want us to understand as we we read through these psalms. Um, First off, these psalms, these are not prayers for uh, personal vengeance. David's not praying and saying, God, I want you to kill my enemies. I want you to destroy my enemies. See, David, when you look at the life of David, David is possibly the the, the least vengeful man in the Old Testament. You think about the life of of David, you think about his interactions with, with Saul and, and with Nabal, and with Absalom, and Shimei. You see these stories of David being overly gracious to these people, of, of Saul trying to continually kill David, and David continues to honor him, despite the, the, the uh, horrible relationship between the two. And so, so these are, are prayers uh, that he's not praying that, that God would get back at his enemies, or, or that allow David to get, to get even. He's, he's praying and asking God to, to deal justly with transgressors. And see, there's this idea that I think we need to understand, that there's, there's a difference between vindication and vindictiveness. There's a huge difference between vindication and vindictiveness. See, what David is doing right here is he's praying for vindication. He's praying and saying, God, these people have, have violated against you. God, I want you to be vindicated. He's not praying out of vindictiveness of, of God, come and, and, and make me feel better. This isn't his own personal uh, satisfaction that he's looking for. In fact, we're told in Romans chapter 12 that uh, we are not to seek vengeance because God said that he will do the vengeance. And quite honestly, God's going to do it much better than we are anyways, right? So uh, oftentimes when you see these psalms as well, um, the judgment comes after a long period where, where love was extended towards the enemy. Uh, they've, God has pursued and loved the enemy for a very long time. And uh, this idea that wickedness is so persistent that... Uh, the time for redemption has passed, and now God has only recourse is to, to judge them and to bring uh, destruction to them. You say, well, that doesn't sound like the New Testament. That doesn't sound like my, my Jesus. Well, in fact, Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 12, he talks about the unforgivable sin. Uh, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And so this idea that there becomes a point when somebody can go beyond uh, the, the realm of, of grace is, is, is there. You see that in Scripture in both the, the, the Old and New Testament. And I think that one of the things I notice about, about David is, is I think this prayer is, is provoked by a horror of sin. I think you see David being very sensitive to the ugliness of sin, where he looks at what's happening and says, I cannot just allow this, this, this sin to continue. I can't allow people to continue to take God's name in vain, to continue to mock him and to, to, to do whatever. And so David even prays in verse 19 and says, he says, let the wicked depart from me. David's saying, I want nothing to do with it. These are enemies of God and I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want them in my life. I don't want them around me at all. He's kind of saying, God, I understand that, God, you hate sin. And David's saying, man, I want to be, be loyal to you, God. And if you hate sin, man, I want to hate sin. Now, the things that you hate, God, I want to hate. The things that you love, God, I want to love. I mean, this is what it looks like to be loyal. Like, if, if somebody's, going to, uh, somebody's going to come after my kids... Man, I'm going to get right back in their face. I mean, it's just what I'm going to do. I'm loyal to my kids. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to stand up for them. So the first thing that we're going to do if we're going to establish a gospel identity is we've got to become loyal to God. We've got to develop a loyalty to God. In fact, here's just just a bold thought for us to think about. Like perhaps David's words in verses 19 through 22 Maybe they appear so extreme because maybe we're a little more cavalier with sin. Maybe we don't really think sin is really that big of a deal. Maybe we don't hate sin and see the ugliness of sin like David did. See, what we know, what we know is that the world has this loud voice. And even though, even though our symptom has been dealt with, even though we understand our identity is in Christ... Listen, I'm, I'm a pastor. I know this as good as anybody. My identity is in Christ. I get it. I get it. I get it. But I hate to admit how much the voice of the world and how the world influences me. And my selfish heart leads me to start pursuing an identity in all of the wrong things. Where I begin to think, you know what? As a pastor, maybe, maybe if I was a little better preacher, maybe then I'd finally be okay. Like, like as a pastor, maybe if my church was a little bit bigger, then I'd be Okay. And this is, this is what happens, is my identity is in God, I know it, but the world just continues to speak into it and draw our heart away from, from what we knew to, we know to be true. And this is, a, this is a spiritual battle that we are all in. All of us have this spiritual battle where Satan draws the world out and tries to draw us away from the heart of God. See, Satan, Satan can't do anything to God. I mean, we understand that Satan tried to kill Jesus, and that didn't work, right? Not at all. And so because God is, is omniscient, because he's omnipotent, because he's all-knowing and, and all-powerful, Satan can't get to God. So what does Satan do? He goes after us. He goes after God's children. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw you away from God. I'm going to turn your heart away from God and, and try and get you to forget your identity in God and begin to, to fr- uh, look at your identity elsewhere. Satan wants us to forget that we're made precious in God's sight. He wants us to forget that we're wonderfully and and perfectly made. He wants us to forget that God is there. We're never beyond his care and his reach. And so we look into the mirror and we hear what the world says about us. We look at the mirror and we think, man, we're not good enough. Man, I've got to pursue the things of this world to, to make myself feel complete. To deal with the wrongs that are in my heart. And this is where, again, I think we know identity comes from Christ. But Satan takes the world and he prances it in front of our face. He prances it in front of our eyes. He prances it in our mind and says, you know what? Maybe, maybe look at all the world has to offer. Look at all the world has to offer. Or maybe Satan begins to prance other people's lives in front of our face, in front of our mind. We begin to look at what other people have and think, man, if I just had what they had, then I'd be okay. Okay then I'd be satisfied. And you know what we become? We become adulterers. We become adulterers. That's what we become. Where God says, your validation comes from me. But then when we start looking for our validation from our success and from what people say about us, we become adulterers. God says, this is where you get your validation. But we leave him here and we go look for it out here. We become adulterers. This is where God says, your your affirmation comes from me. But instead of allowing our affirmation to come from God, we allow our affirmation to come from how many Facebook followers we have and how many likes we get on Instagram. Where instead of our our confidence coming from God, we allow our confidence to come from from our looks or from our sensuality or from our superiority over other people. We become adulterers, is what we become. In the same way, Satan begins to flash other people's lives in front of our face. And we begin to think, you know what? Man, I feel insecure because of them. And we play this comparison game. Where guys, we look at another man, we think, man, look at them. They own their own business. Their business is growing. They're successful in their career. Look at their new car. Look at their kids. Their kids are all-star baseball players. And we look at ourselves and we're like, man, my car, I got to add two quarts of oil to it every week just so it goes. My kids, I'm happy if they walk instead of striking out every time. And we feel completely insecure because we're basing our life on what somebody else's life looks like. Ladies, you do the same thing. You look at another mom and you're like, look, they have homework time every day after school. And their kids sit quietly and finish their homework. And look, that mom, she's got homemade cookies. And that mom, she's so frugal. You know, she got all of her kids' clothes um, at secondhand stores and great deals on them. And and honestly ladies we look at our life you look at your lives and you're like man I'm insecure because I'm hoping my kids do homework on the way to school the next morning and get it done by the time they get to school. And my kids they don't even know they make you can make cookies at home. They only think cookies come from Safeway. And 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 <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit. I've bought shirts for my kids that have cost way more than they should and they've worn once. Like that's isn't that what we do? And we begin to feel really insecure, like, like my life isn't as good as their life, and I could just be a little bit like that. Then I'd be okay. Then I'd be complete. Then I'd be satisfied. See, this is where we have to deal with this gospel identity. Allow our identity to be rooted deep in, in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And it's time for us as a people to decide we are going to be loyal to God. Being loyal to God means we're going to begin to hate the things that God hates. That we're going to love the things that God loves. Now, it's easy for us to love the things that God loves. God loves people. Absolutely, I can do that. God loves food. I mean, he made food. So certainly, I got no problem with that. But hating the things that God hates, that's a little bit harder, isn't it? Because that's looking at things that this world would dance in front of us and say, look how good this looks. Harder to hate that sort of thing. Listen, there are some in here. Man, you continue to flirt with the wrong identity. You continue to flirt with it. You say, I, I got this little Christian thing, and this is what I do, but then I'm going to keep this in my back pocket. Keep this little secret identity because, you know, that world, It really looks. it really looks good. And so I keep it in my back pocket. I'm like, no, 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 I've got this little Jesus thing, but I've got this other identity too, and I'm going to balance the two. Listen, this is not loyalty. That's called adultery. You are committing adultery to God. You're allowing your heart to be diverted to two places, and it can't do that. You've got to decide, I'm going to be loyal to God. And some of us need to just decide today, I'm going to stop flirting with the world. I'm going to stop flirting and having my identity come from all these other things. Stop keeping it in your back pocket. Stop trying to say, I'm going to keep Jesus here. I'm going to keep this over here on this hand. Stop trying to balance the two. Loyalty to God means we stop playing with the fire. Because we can allow this a little bit in and it just continues to steal our heart away from God. Listen, the things that are pulling you away from God, just get rid of them. Don't try and keep them in your back pocket and think you're going to control it. Just get rid of it. Pray and say, God, help me to hate the things that you hate. God, help me to, to, to pull my heart back to you. Or well, these things that are pulling me away from you, God, help me to see them as being destructive. Help me to see them as being enemies to you, God. Help me develop a loyalty to you. Or God, I will begin to hate the things that you hate and love the things that you love. Stop. We gotta stop holding on to these things and worrying, worrying about what we'll do without it. Start to worry what you're missing out on because you're holding on to an idol instead of holding completely on to God. Yeah, we've got to develop a loyalty to God. We've gotta allow our hearts to hate the things that God hates. Second thing that David's gonna teach us about. Developing a gospel identity that's deeply rooted in Christ is he's going to tell us to get real before God He says in verse 23, he says Search me O god and know my heart Try me and know my thoughts see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting See in this little prayer david prays three specific things. He says first god search me God search my heart now, we've already talked about this. We already talked about how God is omniscient. God knows all things. We've already talked about how God knows our thoughts before they, uh, can, we can form them into words. Like, God knows everything about us. And so when he says, God, search me, he's not saying, God, you need to search me because you have ignorance about me. No, I think it's because we have a selfish heart. I think because Jeremiah 17 uh, says, our heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And I think when David writes and says, search me, O God, it's more for his benefit. Saying, God, search me and help me to see the areas that I've allowed the world to steal away from you. Help me see the areas of my heart that aren't centered on you, that are centered on other things. I think he's saying, search me, God, and help me see the parts of my life that are not rooted in you, God. Search me. Second thing he says is, he says, see if there be any grievous way in me. This word grievous means, means a way of pain. It can be translated as hurtful or, or sorrowful way. He's saying, God, God, f- find anything that would cause you uh, or anyone else pain. Find the things that I've done that are wrong. Confront me with them. Help me see my sin. And the third thing he prays and says, lead me in the way of everlasting. Lead me in paths of righteousness. Teach me, God, the right way to live and help me to dedicate my life to living that way. Saying, change me, God. Change my heart. Help me to deal not just with the symptom, but God, help me to deal with the disease. Help me to deal, drill deep into my heart who I am in you. And God, change me from the inside out. Listen, I, I want to dare you. I dare you to pray this prayer. Psalm, 20, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I dare you to pray that prayer. God, search me. God, reveal to me my sin. God, change me. Lead me in the path of righteousness. See, you are inviting God to show you your sins, to show you your weaknesses, to show you your defects. That's not an easy thing, is it? That's a scary thing for me. When I think about inviting God, search me and show me, it's a scary thing. Because normally what we want to do is we want to hide all this stuff, right? Like we, we don't like seeing our sins. We don't like seeing our weaknesses. We don't want to think on them. We don't want to dwell on them. And we certainly don't want anyone else to see them, right? And so we try and, and, and hide these things. And we think, you know, if I can just hide, maybe, maybe God doesn't even see them. And so this is how we respond. We live in denial. Pretend we don't have these problems. Pretend like, hey, we're okay. We don't have to address them. And when God or somebody else, when they bring it up and say, hey, I see this thing in you, we become defensive. We become defensive and say, no, no, I, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so, so I'm really not that bad. We begin to say, well, well it's not, I'm not that bad. It's not my fault. It's, it's, it's the way I was raised. It's my parents' fault. That's why I do this. We become defensive and we have excuses for the sin in our life. But you see, when we become real before God, when we can pray that God, pray that prayer and say, God, search me and know me, confront me with my sin. God, lead me in paths of righteousness. We are inviting God to to change and to redeem our, our stuff. We're inviting God to redeem us, to redeem our issues, to redeem our junk. And those hang-ups that we think the world will satisfy. When we become open to God, that allows God to come in and change and redeem us completely. There's this old story that's been going around for for a long time. Where there's a man who was asleep in his cabin. And uh, one night he was sleeping and in the middle of the night his, his room filled with light. And his Savior appeared before him. And God shows up and he says, he says I've, got, I've got work for you. He says, I want you to, uh, to see this large rock. I want you to see this large rock. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to push with all your might against this rock. This man did this for many days. He, he put his shoulder square into the cold, hard rock. And he pushed with all his might. And he'd come home every night. He'd come home with sore He'd come home frustrated and the rock is still there. It hasn't moved. So Satan saw the discouragement. He sees this man pushing with all his might, day after day, month after month, year after year. And Satan sees the discouragement and Satan begins to speak to him and says, says why are you killing yourself over this? Don't you know you're never going to be able to move the rock? Listen, you've been pushing against that rock for all this time and you haven't even budged it an inch. And it gives this man the impression this is an impossible task. I'm an unworthy servant. I'm not faithful to God. I can't do what God asked me to do. So the man says, God, God, what's going on here? God, I've labored for all this time. I've used all of my strength. God, I've done what you've asked me to do. And this rock has not even moved a half of a millimeter. And he says, God, what's wrong with me? Why am I failing? Why can't I succeed? Why can't I get it right? And God says, This God says, I asked you to do something. I asked you to push against that rock with all your might. And you accepted. And I told you to push, and never once did I tell you to move that rock. He says, Your task was to push that rock. He said, You think your time is wasted? He said, Look at your arms. Your arms are now strong and muscled. Look at your back and your legs. They're massive and they're hard. See, through that opposition, you have grown much and your ability now far surpasses what it was when you began. And God says, listen, your call, your task was to push, to be obedient, to push and to exercise faith and trust in me. And you've done that my job was to move the rock. And now I'll step in and move the rock. And it makes me wonder, how many of us, God said, hey, this is what we're supposed to do. And we're pushing against the rock. It's like, man, why can't I succeed in life? I'm pushing against the rock. God, I'm doing what you call me to do. Man, I'm tired. Man, I'm pushing against the rock. Why does everybody else's rock move? God, what's wrong with me? Kind of get this idea. It's God's job to move the rock. It's our job just to be obedient and faithful. And if we would just allow our identity to be rooted in Christ. And who he is and what he has done for us. Pretty soon the rock isn't the problem. And we can just be thankful that we have a relationship with a God who loves us. And he changes us. And he moves the rock. Listen, this is my prayer for you, is that you would pray this prayer, that you'd pray this prayer every day and say, God, God, here I am. God, I'm, I'm an open book, God. Search me, test me, lead me, God. See if there be any offensive way in me, God. Lead me to everlasting life. Redeem me, redeem my junk. And as I think about just Psalm 139, I think about the takeaway from this entire series. My prayer is that we would understand, every one of us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God created you perfect. That God created you for his name. That God created you for a relationship with him. Listen, I'll tell you, life makes most sense. Life makes perfect sense when our identity is rooted in Christ and what he has done for us. Because then, then we find the, the, the grace and the mercy that God longs to give us when we allow our identity to be found in him. And when our identity is found in him, listen, it impacts everything in our life. And impacts, impacts how we see ourselves. It impacts our marriage. It impacts our kids. It impacts our, our, our nieces and nephews and our extended family. We have got to allow our identity to not come from the world, but to be rooted in Christ and what he has said about us and, and what he's done for us. Listen, if you are a non-believer here today, we are a safe place for you to investigate Jesus. I want you to come and wrestle with who Jesus is. But I want you to know we're going to push you to find your identity in Jesus and what he's done for you. In fact, if you're in that point now where you're saying, I want some of this Jesus. Listen, there's all sorts of prayers in the Bible. One dude prayed and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And God saved him. Listen, I invite you today to pray a prayer and say, God, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I've sought satisfaction in my life and all these other areas that the world has to offer, but God, today I'm coming to you and I'm allowing you to become my savior, inviting you into my heart. God, I believed that you died on the cross for me. God, I believe you rose from the grave, conquering Satan, death, and hell. And today, God, I choose to become a Christian. Listen, pray that prayer. And allow that identity to be rooted in Christ. Listen, if you're a believer here today, have you ever, are you willing to pray that prayer? To say, God, search me. Today, are you willing to be real before God? To allow God to confront you with the areas that you're holding on to instead of hating. The areas that you are not allowing God to redeem. I understand it feels like, oh, I got to, Bring my junk out. Listen, God will redeem it. God brings beauty out of the ashes. And we just stop holding on to the ashes. God could do something beautiful in your life and your story. As I think about a way to respond to this today. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus called his disciples together. He said, listen, guys, I love you. And I'm going to show you how much I love you. And Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, I love you so much that I'm going to lay my life down for you. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup, this is the new covenant. He said that the, before the old covenant, it was all about Performance. It was a workspace based religion. You had to to do certain things. And if you did enough, then God would approve of you. And he said, listen, the new covenant, it's all about grace. It's all about grace. It's not about what you do. It's about what I've done. And this cup represents my blood that I am pouring out for you. And he says, so when you eat of this bread and when you drink of this cup, You proclaim my death until I come. See, communion would be the natural way for us to respond to this identity in Christ. Because you know what the cross says about you? The cross says we don't have to find our identity in what other people say about us. The cross shows us that God approves of us. The cross shows us that God loves us so much that he sent his only son to the cross. The cross shows us that God is proud of us. The cross shows us that God is always with us. And today, God is right here. God is is right here, right now. And he is inviting us to experience his love and his grace. He's inviting us to find our identity and our worth and our value and our purpose in him. And not what the world has to say about us. And in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity An invitation to come to the table right here. To take the bread, to take the cup, and receive the gift that only God can give. This is an invitation from God. It's not an invitation from me. It's not an invitation from from Restoration Church. This is God himself saying, I'm giving you these elements right here to remind you of how I feel about you. To remind you that I have Come to to give you a new identity, to make you a son and daughter of God. So, your identity comes from me and not what everybody else says about you. If you were a follower of Christ, you were invited in this first worship song to come to the table and to partake of communion, to remind it of what Jesus did for you. Listen, and when you're coming, You see this mirror right here. When you're in line to get your communion, I want you to look into that mirror. And I want you to ask yourself, what do you see? What do you see in that mirror? See all your hangups? See all your failures? See all your mistakes? But what does God see in that mirror? God sees someone he loves. God sees someone who's precious. God sees someone who says they're mine. God sees someone who says, I'm proud of you. God sees someone who says, I'm with you always. You're never alone. Just as an opportunity to be reminded of your identity. As you walk past that mirror, think about what God says about you. Let's pray. God, I just come before you today and just thank you for who you are. And God, I want to pray that prayer on my behalf today, God. God, I want to pray my pray this prayer and say, God, would you search me? God, would you know my heart? God, would you see if there be any grievous way in me? And God, bring that to the forefoot of my mind and give me an opportunity, God, to confess that before you to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've held on to this, that I've sought to build my identity on this thing that's a false idol. But God, I would come today and say, God, would you lead me in the way of everlasting? God, would you give us as people today that that boldness and that faith to say, God, would you search me? Would you reveal that in me? And God, could I just give that over to you today that, God, you could redeem it? that you could change my heart, that you could change me from the inside out. God, would you allow us to be a people who are not confused about who we are, that we wouldn't allow the world and what people say about us to define us, but we would allow what you say about us to define us, that we are valuable, that we are precious, that we are loved, that we are bought with a price. And God, as we walk past this mirror, that we wouldn't believe the lies of what the world says about us. God, we would look in this mirror and we see what you say about us. That we're loved. That we're precious. That you gave your son for us. So God, I pray for us that we'll have an opportunity right now. Before we come forward, just to take a moment and just pray before you and say, God, would you search me? God, would you reveal in me? God, would you lead me the path of righteousness, the way of everlasting life? God, I just thank you for allowing your presence to be with us now. Pray, God, you help us to respond. Help us respond in our seats in confession before you. Help us respond through communion and the memory of what Christ has done for us. And help us respond through worship and celebration and praise, God, for what you've done. That we love you and praise you. And I ask your spirit to continue to rest on us now, Jesus. In your holy and precious name, amen.